This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Jeff Deist. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. My usual co-host, Bob Murphy, is on vacation this week. I'm not going to tell you where because I don't want any of you publicity seekers or autograph hounds to go bother him as he's languishing on the beach at a resort. But anyway, uh, I believe most of you probably know our guest. It's Connor Boyack. Uh, Connor runs Libertas Institute out in Utah, which is a state-based think tank, which has had a lot of effective uh, policy implementation in that beautiful state. But more importantly, for our purposes today, he is, of course, the author of the Tuttle Twins series. And the newest, latest, greatest Tuttle Twins is a little different, folks. It's uh, hardcover. It's longer. It's more substantial. It's called Tuttle Twins Series of Stories, America's History, 1215 to 1776. So, Connor, great to see you, buddy. How you doing? Thanks, Jeff. I'm doing great. How are you? Well, okay. So we've talked about this offline. I noticed when I got the book, uh, obviously it is um, inscribed in the inside, dedicated to Murray Rothbard for looking at history through a lens of liberty. So at least loosely, Rothbard's five-volume Conceived in Liberty animates this book somewhat. Yeah, so I think most of your listeners will know that uh, traditionally our children's series with the Tuttle Twins is based off, they're all based off of, you know, classic important books. We've got, you know, Road to Serfdom, Economics in One Lesson, Human Action. Uh, our, our coup de grace perhaps was somehow turning Anatomy of, of the State into a children's book that parents wouldn't revolt about. Um, so with this one, where we want to do American history for both Elijah and I, Conceived in Liberty was the the clear choice. It was always just so amazing to us how how deep his insights were before the internet of like having all these, you know, little tidbits of knowledge and, and perspective. And so, you know, we're not just taking that book and making a children's version. We are kind of picking and choosing the bits that we can use to keep a narrative story kind of moving forward. Um, but, but at Rothbard's books, I mean, we utilize them heavily. Patrick Newman was very gracious and advising us and uh, offering his kind of um, summaries and perspectives on top of that. It was all super helpful to us as Elijah and I were working on the story. Well, I want to start with a term that sometimes is treated with disrespect, revisionism. Now, Rothbard was a big believer in revisionism. As a matter of fact, we will link in our show notes a 1976 article he wrote in the Libertarian Forum called The Case for Revisionism. And to Rothbard, a lot of history is bunk uh, because it's written by sort of the status victors and that there's an important role, even at the Mises Institute, when Lou Rockwell and Murray Rothbard were talking about starting the organization, the idea that we should uh, apply a revisionist lens to history in order to get at truth uh, was important to Rothbard. And I think, at least in some small part, that's what you do with the Tuttle Twins. It is. And I'll, I'll explain it this way. The 1619 Project, which most people know about, I think is a similar kind of revision, revisionist approach to dictate a new future and a new direction based on framing the past differently. And so for us, We've almost toyed with creating a marketing project for the book called the 1215 Project, since mm -hmm. our book starts uh, around then to really tell the history of America's founding. But but for me, it lands home this way. I I was bullied in high school a lot. I mm. uh, I was very short. I was uh, a late bloomer. I was stuffed in trash cans. You know, beaten up like all kinds of stuff. Now I can frame my own history to say I'm a victim. 
other people are out to get me, all these problems in life stem from my upbringing and, and those experiences. I should have reparations of some kind, you know, every problem I have today can be traced. Like, so I can frame my past and let it affect my present and my future that way. Or I could say, you know, maybe those kids were being abused at home and they didn't know how to take it out. So they took it out on me. Maybe I can have compassion for the underdog today. Maybe I can have a measure of grace for, for other people. I can, I can frame my own past in a way that better empowers me to have a productive, and uplifting uh, present and future. So that's what we're trying to do with the Teletwins, not just regurgitate all the historical facts dryly, but much like Rothbard was saying, I think is, is like, we want to look at this with a particular intent and that mm-hmm. is to extract from history, a narrative that suits us in having a future of Liberty to understand how those elements happened in the past and how they can inform what we do today. Well, it's interesting you bring up the 1619 Project. And, of course, the idea that we should go back and look at American history or any other history, warts and all, I can certainly agree with that. I, I don't think most of us have a problem with that. It just seems like it always goes in one direction. Uh, you know, a lot of listeners are probably familiar with Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States. So well, I've read that. I enjoyed that. I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, but that revisionism only seems to go in one way, and it's always – uh, sort of a left-wing direction, serving status goals, serving left progressive uh, political goals today. That always seems to be the real reason for the history rewrites. So, the, you know, the 1619 Project people don't go back and read Rothbard and say, well, here we can look at American history through this liberty versus power analysis. They just go back and say, well, the entire sum of U.S. history is basically the black experience mainly slavery and Jim Crow. And of course, that isn't the entire sum of U.S. history. So I I imagine, and I know you've had some articles written about you and Jacob in other places, I imagine you get hit with uh, a a right-wing moniker by your critics. Oh, very much so. And, and, you know, propagandists and all the rest. And, And I always like to meet them where they're at and say, guilty as charged. I mean, if you really understand what propaganda is in its pure sense, it's the propagation of ideas. And Mm -hmm. every parent is a propagandist. We are all indoctrinating children. We're teaching them the doctrine. The ultimate question is, whose propaganda? Whose whose doctrine are we teaching? Do we surrender to the state and let it and its its functionaries kind of perpetuate its narrative to push that on unsuspecting children? Or do we empower parents to say, you believe in this particular worldview. We're going to help you talk about that worldview to your children. So yes, this is propaganda. Yes, this is indoctrination, but in its true sense, not in the version where the teacher closes the door and then uses their bully pulpit to, you know, push these ideas on the kids. Quite the opposite. That is to get into the, the kitchen and the dining room and the living room and say, Hey mom, Hey dad, read this together. Talk about it with your kids, take from it. What suits you leave behind the rest. That's fine. But it's more about empowering families rather than pushing an agenda something I think that we have too little of today because Mm -hmm. as we saw during COVID with Zoom school, parents are suddenly freaking out when they realize what their kids were teaching now that they got to see a little bit behind the scenes. And and that's not what we're about. Well, how about the idea that America is a great place and we're actually all quite fortunate to have been born here? Is that radical? Today, yes, all right. Like <laughs> to to express a measure of optimism and and, and gratitude, yeah. I uh, at the last chapter of our book in particular is is, is bringing this up. There, it's a declar- it's a Independence Day celebration, 
and the Tuttle family, they're out with the community and celebrating, but there's a, a protest, kind of like a critical race theory-esque uh, type of protest where people are, you know, saying, oh, the indigenous tribes and all oh, the slaves and, mm-hmm. you know, you're all hypocrites claiming that you believe in freedom because look at these oppressed people and trying to inject a little bit of this narrative. We, we didn't want to get too on the nose or too, you know, explicit, but we wanted to raise this idea. So Emily... She it kind of lands for her. She's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe maybe they're right. Maybe like, who are we to celebrate independence and uh, be happy about what's going on if there are some people who have been uh, mistreated? And, and so she's mm-hmm. kind of struggling with this idea. And it's another couple of recurring uh, characters in our book who come to her and who happen to have kind of the minority ethnic background who are like, you know, don't listen to that. I'm not a victim. I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate. I'm making something of my life. And we could acknowledge the bad in the past in order to not repeat it. Uh, mm-hmm. But we don't need to, you know, self-flagellate and beat ourselves up. If anything, we should, again, take the good, leave the bad and kind of have a better direction where I think ultimately the aims, and this is Connor's opinion of, you know, the critical race theory folks, the 1619 pro- uh, project folks, I think their aim is not to discredit the founding fathers. It's not to tear down the statues and get everyone to hate, you know, Jefferson and have Monticello and others kind of turning against their, uh, you know, progenitors and so forth. It's, I think, to discard their classical liberal ideas by tearing down the statues and, and calling the founding fathers white supremacist bigots. I think the attempt behind these kind of Marxist oriented people today is to undermine the credibility and the appealing nature and the heritage of the classical liberal ideas that the American tradition is built upon. Really, I think that's the ultimate aim. And so for us, it's quite the opposite. It's to mm-hmm. restore these ideas and say, America is great precisely because it's connected to these ideas. And to the extent we deviate from them, it's not going to be mm. so great. Let's be grateful for that heritage with all the warts and bumps that you pointed out, Jeff, or mentioned. Um, but let's, let's recognize how amazing those are and then lean into that and say, let's hold on to, let's not make America great. Let's keep what has made America great in the past. Yeah. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the idea of the right or libertarians as beautiful losers, there's always been this idea, you know, attack the idea, not the person. And of course we see the left does the opposite. Uh, extremely effectively. So that that should give us maybe pause when it comes to thinking about strategy. But I would like to point out that CRT, the 1619 Project, Howard Zinn, all of these get boosted in the New York Times. They get into mainstream classrooms, <laughs> mainly mainstream universities. You know, Rothbard and the Tall Twins don't. I mean, I think we should acknowledge that. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. Here's maybe a related point. I'm reading a book right now, which I found fascinating. Uh, it's called How to Hide an Empire. I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head. I'm about two-thirds into the book. But the whole book is about what used to be called, I guess, the greater United States and the colonialism of America when it came it comes, uh, in present tense in a lot of cases, to Hawaii and Alaska and Puerto Rico and the Philippines and, and, and learning about um, how America in the past and certain leaders and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt mm-hmm. and all these guys were – uh, outright imperialists trying to acquire land and resources, uh, totally racist bigots and seeing these people as, you know, subhuman and not American, even though they were U.S. nationals. And it's a fascinating history. I bring this up, Jeff, because 
this stuff was never taught to me in the classroom. Mm-hmm. This kind of checkered past of America. It, it's, it's very much this kind of uh, confined narrative to whatever suits the, 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 the thought police and the, the elite today. And I just, we all know this quote, those who don't learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. And it's like, if we don't understand what's happened in the past, how do we prevent it from happening in the future? And here I am, I, I think kind of an avid student of history and writing now books uh, about history and all this stuff. And I'm reading this book about the Philippines and how the bloodiest mm. American wars, it wasn't the civil war, it was over in the Philippines. I had never encountered this stuff before. And so I, I think there is a level of suppression of information that is not ideal to the victors and to the current narrative. And that troubles me because there's so many lessons to be learned in those stories that would make you know us more informed individual citizens today and uh i just think the public schools people say i speak to a lot of parents groups and they say connor the the public school system is broken what do we do and i say hold up i don't think it's broken i think it's doing exactly what john dewey and horace Mann and all these guys designed Mm -hmm. it to do and part of that is the suppression of you know dissident level information they don't want critical thinking they don't want people reading about the state's you know clear failings in the past the internment of the japanese and all these different things and so it's pushed down the orwellian memory hole and is it any wonder today we have all these apathetic you know fully schooled 18 year olds that are pumped into the the voting system that are completely clueless i think that's all by design and what i think we're trying to do in some small measure with the tuttle twins is you know, have a course correction and make sure these young people are being exposed to these ideas before they start voting based upon them. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's this whole genre, Connor, of YouTubes where people go to the beach or a public street somewhere and ask man on the street questions like what U.S. states border Canada, things like that. You know, and obviously the YouTube is designed to titillate or whatever by showing how stupid everybody is and uninformed. But man, oh man, I bet you if you went out Outside on the street where your office is right now and asked people to tell them to tell you about the Magna Carta and the importance of 1215. I'm not sure what you'd get, frankly. Probably not a lot. And uh, to that, I say it's not a public school system. It's a public fool system. Mm. You know, we we somehow think that schooling and education are the same thing. It's actually kind of interesting. Our audience is split right down the middle. Uh, the Tuttle Twins audience, half of them are homeschoolers. So for that, you know, and of course that audience has exploded in the past uh, couple of years. I think it's tripled across the country. So for them, our books and materials, it's more curriculum, right? It's like, Hey, Mm -hmm. we're going to sit down and this will be your civics or your history or your economics. Um, But what's more interesting to me is talking to the other half of the audience who are in, you know, public, private or charter school. It's mostly public. And so we've done a lot of like little focus groups and surveys and stuff, trying to understand how are those people using these, um, these books and nearly unanimously for them, they like when we give them kind of these options to choose from, they feel like it is a counter agent, right? It's an inoculation against the like infectious ideological diseases of the classroom. And those parents for whatever reason have chosen or can't or whatever, you know, they can't homeschool and that's just not what they're doing but they know that their kids both are not learning the right stuff mm-hmm. and they're actively being taught the bad stuff. And so it's like, you know, sending your kid into battle without armor or shield when, you know, now you can uh, have that. And so for me, it's this question of intentionality of like, 
you will lose every battle you don't know is being fought. And if parents don't realize that we're in the middle of an ideological war and that, you know, our children's minds are effectively ground zero, mm-hmm. um, then you'll lose every day. Mm-hmm. And so let's at least, again, you're going to put your kids in school or not fine. Understand that everyone's got different life paths and choices, but my heavens, at least, you know, give them that armor, at least recognize that it is a battle and before you just plug them into TikTok and let them mm-hmm. go nuts, like mm-hmm. let's have some conversations and <laughs> make mm-hmm. sure that they're learning the good stuff. Well, I think it's an obligation on all of us. And if, if, if any particular listeners don't have children, you have friends, you have nieces and nephews, you have young people in your lives. And Connor, I, I think we're all homeschooling. Even if your kid goes to a traditional True. school, public or private, you're, they're home and you're home reading educating. with them, right? <laughs> Uh, you're teaching them how to separate the whites from the darks so they don't screw up the laundry. Uh, you're teaching them how to drive, you, you know, whatever it might be. Um, we're all homeschoolers, I think, in that sense, if we have kids. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that you talk about the Magna Carta in 1215. We think of the Magna Carta countries of the Anglosphere, uh, you know, the, the countries where there's some sort of charter of rights available to common people against a sovereign. Uh, the, the, the so-called Magna Carta nations didn't do so well during COVID, Connor, when it comes to due <laughs> process and, and all kinds of things. When we think of the United States and Canada and Western Europe and Australia and New Zealand, in many ways, they were as or more draconian than some of the non-Anglosphere countries. I think of, I think it was Madison who said uh, that the Constitution is a mere parchment barrier, you know, um, or or could be if the if the culture and the values and the ideas are not there to support it, if the citizenry is not educated, um, and and I think that's what we're at. I mean, it's the whole Benjamin Franklin, a republic if you can keep it. Mm-hmm. All of this is predicated as many more of the founding founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, and all the rest, repeatedly said that this experiment is built on the idea of an informed citizenry who understands these ideas. And so you're right. Like we've got these, these paper documents, the, um, the Anglosphere, the Magna Carta constitution, whatever, of course, like, you know, tons of other countries have uh, modified or, or I should say modeled their constitutions based on the U S constitution after it was written. But of what good are any of those protections if none of the legislators and none of the uh, judges and no one else really cares, doesn't really understand? Uh, yes. Just I think this week there were congressional hearings on some gun control stuff and some of the Republicans put up these big signs behind them, you know, shall not be infringed, trying to remind us about the Second Amendment, what it means. But to the you know Congress, uh, Congress folks on the left, like they don't care. It's It's a conventionally useful thing when you want to claim that there's a constitutional right, but it is not really served as an impediment to the rest of us. Ultimately, I think we're in a war of ideas. Um, We can fight lawsuits and hope we get good judges to interpret the constitution the right way or whatever. But if the, the people are not in line ideologically, culturally Mm -hmm. with the um, ideas that are in the document, then of what purpose is it? It's not going to be a defense and, um, I, I really think that's the struggle we're in. Think of this, Jeff. You and I both lead organizations that are trying to educate adults. Um, and there are hundreds of them out there. But the analogy that I use is imagine a, a garden and it's an orchard. It's full of these diseased, decaying trees, gnarled and knotted. And 
you and I and others are out there trying to fertilize these trees back to good health with, with our ideas. We're reaching these adults, trying to nurture them back to the right you know, path and be fruitful. And that's important. We have to do that. But good grief, you're a horrible gardener if you are not also focused on protecting the seeds and the saplings to make sure that they avoid that same rot. And I feel like those of us in the liberty movement, broadly speaking, however you want to uh, define that, We've been playing defense because we're always waiting until people are adults. We're surrendering them to the school system for their most formative years of intellectual development. And then we turn around and say, okay, what have we got? Oh, a bunch of you know ignoramuses who are social justice warriors. All right, let's try and improve that. Like if, if we took one-tenth of the investment that this whole movement is putting into adults, which we need to continue to do, like we got to do that. But if we took a tenth of that and invested it in focusing on the rising generation and supporting parents and talking to their kids about these ideas, total game changer. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's a rallying cry beyond just producing the Tuttle Twins materials and selling them to the people who want them. It's very much within my kind of nonprofit think tank community trying to say, Hey guys, like we need way more of this stuff. Uh, Cause I'd like to win. I'd like to go on the offense and uh, not always lose. I, I think you said like the graceful defeat of the mm -hmm. you know libertarians that we're used to. Uh, I'm tired of that. I want to go mm -hmm. on the offense. And, and to me, it means going after the, the young. Well, it's remarkable how we send our kids off to spend eight hours a day, basically amongst a bunch of left-wing women. I, I mean, almost all elementary school teachers are female. There's hardly any male role models. I mean, and then, you know, all of a sudden they come home 18 and surly you know, going through their uh, Kurt Cobain phase or whatever, I'm dating myself, you know. <laughs> and, and look, Connor, I hope it's a war of ideas that we're engaged in. I hope that's all it is. And that's what we're, we're trying to do here. Um, you know, when you start talking about the Western canon, and of course, England, as our parent nation in many ways, plays a big role here. But even before the Magna Carta, you go back and talk a little bit, you and Elijah talk a little bit about the Silk Road and trade. And mm. that really stuck out to me, first of all, of course, because of the Silk Road and poor Ross Albrecht uh, is still in jail, which right. is a tragedy. But, but then I have a good friend of the Institute named John Lang, and he studies evolutionary biology. He likes Matt Ridley and that sort of thing. And he goes, you know, when you go back and you look at books about evolutionary biology, if you go to the index, there won't be anything about trade. You know, we, we tend to think that history was solely a matter of conquest and, and mm -hmm. that that's, that's the mechanism by which, and sometimes, you know, actual DNA, but, but more importantly, ideas and goods travel. But, but there, was actually, there was actually an element of trade that almost goes through the bloodstream of civilization, like DNA, which wasn't necessarily force. And um, you, you, you could do a whole book on the Silk Road, I think. Uh, you definitely could. And Elijah and I both wanted to start back then because for us, con context is everything uh, when you're teaching history. It's why I hated history in school. It was the memorization of names and dates and which battle happened when and who said what thing to who, which convention and like all that stuff. I, I couldn't stand that. Uh, but, but it's the context that allows us to tell a story. Mm -hmm. And so for us, when Elijah and I were working on this, reading Rothbard, trying to kind of figure out this narrative that we were going to do, uh, for us, it was like, okay, why does, why does America exist? Okay, America exists now because of colonization. Uh, well, why did the colonization occur? Well, that was because of exploration. You had all these people going across ships, you know, uh, risking blood and treasure to search for something. What were they searching for? Well, 
We're going for spices and riches and resources that, well, why? Why were they? Well, it's because the Silk Road was exploding and they had this kind of, uh, you know, massive network of trade happening where people were financially incentivized to bring in new things because everything was, you know, commoditizing. There was the common stuff. And then, ooh, have you seen this, you know, amazing new thing from this faraway land? And so ultimately the story of of America, we felt like was, this kind of inception of trade mm-hmm. that sparked exploration, mm-hmm. which sparked colonization, an unfortunate aspect of, mm-hmm. of things in a lot, in some respects, um, which led to America. So you go to the 1619 folks and they say, well, story of America is a story of importation of slavery without which the economy would not have prospered like it did. And you built America on the backs of these, you know, oppressed black people. Well, sure. That's a thread to the story. We should acknowledge it. We should talk about it. We should understand it, but it, itself needs context because that's not the full story. And for Elijah and I, we felt like going back to the 1200s with Marco Polo and the Silk Road was a more authentic story. Getting back to our earlier part of the conversation, Jeff, it's also a way to frame the past in a way that helps us better understand the future in a very kind of productive uh, way to understand how central it is, uh, how central trade is to kind of political and economic development. Um, and, and we, we thought it worked. We thought it, uh, and, and now that we've, the book's been out for a few weeks, a uh, bunch of the comments that we've gotten have all been, my gosh, I didn't realize back in the mm-hmm. 1200s that was happening and how it's connected to our world today. And so I think the readers are really appreciating, unlike Ron Swanson, who believed, you know, history started in 1776 and everything before that didn't matter. Uh, I think a lot of our readers have appreciated the context of what was going on that led to America today, because it is the context that tells the story. And, uh, and so for us, it was a good move to start that way. So let me ask you a tough one. The idea of America as a creedal nation or an idea, a portable nation that you could, in theory, recreate anywhere versus America as a particular nation with you know, particular people, history, geography, resources that made it what it is. Um, that That's a tough question, but it, it's it's still raging. I like this question. Uh, I, I, I'll confess that I lean towards the latter. I think the American experiment was so unique in large measure because you had this blank canvas upon which to experiment. You had the colonies in many case, uh, respects being completely ignored by parliament. Uh, you know, you look at like Lieberland and these kind of economic mm-hmm. development zones today, they're trying to carve out these little pieces of state controlled, you know, lands. It just, it, they're not working. They're not flourishing. It's hard to beg per, uh, permission for freedom rather than just go out and actualize it by moving to the frontier, planting a flag and saying, these 20 acres are now my homestead. Um, so I've wondered about that. The, the ideas clearly um, permeate across, you know, socioeconomic background and the ideas of liberty can and should be applied to any form of government and any people at any time. I believe these things. But I've wondered in my advocacy role with my think tank, like, was that a kind of a one-off where we can't really rise back to that level I mean, even the founding mm-hmm. fathers and, and just the, their upbringing and the circumstances, that the, the fact that they didn't have TikTok to get addicted to, they, you know, read <laughs> about the Greco-Roman Empire and were learning Latin and all these things that just don't happen today. So 
I lean towards the latter, Jeff. I'd be curious your thoughts on this, but I, I feel like in a lot of respects, it was kind of this one-off that um, that we couldn't fully or, or even close replicate today. Like we should try. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like mm-hmm. Jesus saying, be therefore perfect. We're not going to yeah. be perfect. We should still a- aspire for that. But anyways, I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts. Well, I'm, I, I think there are human universals when it comes to our innate desire for happiness and our need for sustenance and ag- aggression and murder, things like that, as is, is universally harmful. Uh, but even the definition of murder, for example, is not universal. We differ over abortion. Uh, is just one example. But I'm not a universalist politically. I don't, I don't want to go back to the 1960s and try to impose the U.S. Constitution on Lee Kuan Yew, Who's, who, who literally brought Singapore from a swampy <laughs> wasteland into an absolute economic powerhouse. And he did some pretty unpleasant things to do that. Uh, you know, okay. Um, so I guess, I guess I'm against political universalism or globalism. And I'm suspicious. I'm suspicious of the idea of America as this portable nation uh, that would work anywhere. I think if you a, – a, a lot of very happy things – happened to make America the material powerhouse it is. One is that it was surrounded by two vast oceans, which back in the day uh, made it very tough to attack militarily. Yeah. It had lots and lots of arable farmland and continues to today. We can feed ourselves and still export. It had lots and lots and lots of timber and continues to today, although not of the same quality, uh, which meant we could build log cabins and burn fires and that sort of thing. Uh, it had lo- just lots of land and elbow room in and of itself was a huge benefit and blessing. So um, uh, I- I'm friends with Pedro Gonzalez at Chronicles Magazine, and he really comes down heavily on this particularism argument. But, you know, it get, hmm. it, I think it, it informs the way you and Elijah organize the book because you don't go through it, – it's not organized the way people might expect in a boring chronological way. It's more like there's vignettes surrounding yeah. certain particular events uh, that that have become infamous. And I like the way that you guys didn't uh, give this bolderized view of, you know, the Americans were just these great noble frontiersmen in the colonies. And that big, bad King George was just totally bad. And he was, you know, it's, it's not that way. It's not black and white. And you don't, and you don't present it that way. And that's certainly intentional. Uh so this is volume one. We're likely going to do four volumes. I was sharing on uh, Tom Woods' podcast something I think your listeners uh, would likely uh, also enjoy. The the loose structure that we're thinking of is, you know, here volume one goes through 1776, so it's birth of uh, the revolution. And then volume two would be through 1789, so that would be birth of the republic. And then volume mm-hmm. three will probably go through the war between the states, post-reconstruction, birth of the nation state. Uh, volume four, we're thinking of going all the way through the world wars and ending with Dwight D. Eisenhower and his farewell speech warning of the military industrial complex. So that's birth of the empire. So these kind of four kind of, uh, periods of American history, but to your point, we're not trying to cram a particular, you know, perspective down people's throats. What we're really trying to do is foster some conversations because you're right with these little vignettes, we're not going deep and having this 30 page, you know, expose on this individual or that event, we're trying to plant a lot of curiosity seeds. 
so that as mom and her kids are reading or a dad with his son or whatever, they're like, hey, I didn't know about this guy. Let's go watch a YouTube video about him or let's find a biography or let's like we're really just trying to foster curiosity and more exploration. And so for us, it's like you got to have a narrative that that's fun and enjoyable for kids to read. You got to have something that's meaty enough so that they feel like they're it's not just a fluffy story, but you can't give everything away because then people see that this is the authoritative history book. We're really trying to just introduce them to a lot of people and ideas and events, you mm -hmm. know, give them enough substance so mm -hmm. that they feel that they're learning, but not enough that they feel like they don't need to continue that intellectual journey. And so, for example, at uh, Tom's wedding a few weeks ago, I was asking uh, Tom DiLorenzo, we were chatting for a little while about uh, when we're going to talk about, you know, Lincoln and the war. And, and, and certainly, you know, Tom's got his very uh, strong views that I very strongly sympathize with. I've read most of his books. Um, but for us, I don't want to come down in the book and say, Lincoln was horrible and he did all these horrible things and mm -hmm. he was totally wrong. And the South were these victims and mm -hmm. the North was wrong and all the things just like mm -hmm. in volume one, mm -hmm. we didn't want to do that with, you know, the, the crown and the colonies. So what we're really trying to do and likely going to do in volume two and others is just tease up these, these conflicts and say, well, the history books today say that North was great and South was evil case closed. Abraham Lincoln was our Lord and savior. Uh, we're going to try and open it up and say, there's actually some fair arguments on the other side. Here's what the debate was actually about or, or what some of the different arguments were. What do you think? Mm -hmm. uh, volume one, we really went to, to strides to say, and, and Ethan and, and Emily were both asking at one point, are those the good guys or were those the bad guys? And they're corrected in the book to say, like, actually, there's really no such thing. Like, we focus on the good ideas, the bad ideas, but it's not so reductive to say that, you know, England bad America good, um, mm -hmm. nor mm -hmm. with the North and the South in, in mm -hmm. the Civil War and other things. So we're trying to get rid of that absolutism and the, the victor writes the, the, the you know, mm -hmm. history that will be consumed by everyone and trying to show that complex humans have nuance and sometimes there's fair arguments on the other side that you might not have considered. Let's explore those. Always through a lens of liberty ultimately is what we're trying to do, but Again, really, it's just like, let's have some conversations about stuff that teachers and textbooks don't really want us learning about and see where it goes. You know, what's fascinating is that ever since, not that long after the revolutionary period, England has been our one of the top, if not our top trading partner and political ally uh, all, all that time, e even after a war. So I guess in a sense, that's hopeful. Uh, that, that we don't have to uh, view w wars as um, thing, things that have to divide us forever. And, and I wish more history was written about ordinary people's lives and the commercial and trade uh, of a time and place, the commerce and trade of a time and place, as opposed to just the wars and the political figures, which is what we tend to mm -hmm. get in high school. I'm curious, what would be the target age group for this particular? Now, this is a hardcover. This is longer than your typical Tuttle Twins book. What would you say is the age group you're looking at? So this book, it's about 240 pages. There's 11 chapters. So we did a bunch of test reads with families to try and figure that out. Because our children's books, we say 5 to 11 years of age, roughly. This one we're positioning as 7 to 13 
Uh, it's longer, it's a little bit meatier. Mm -hmm. Um, so we felt like the five and six year olds were struggling a bit, but we were still connecting into the preteens pretty well. So seven to 13 is where we've landed. Although I will say the magic of what we do with Tuttle twins is that it exceeds those age ranges all the time. You got the little kids who will sit and look at the pictures that Elijah draws and Mm -hmm. love the little, you know, Mm -hmm. pets or Easter eggs or things that he does. And then you got these teenagers who like a format like this is clearly beneath them in terms of the, the, the format itself, but they've often never yeah. encountered these ideas before. And, and honestly, Jeff, like the thing that shocked both Elijah and I, when we started, I didn't plan for this at all. Like we thought we were doing kids books, like let's teach kids these ideas. And um, that's what we set out to do. But what we have since realized is that over half of the families who get our books the parents themselves are learn and they're answering this way in the surveys they are learning these ideas for sure. the first time sure. like how many how many moms you know when you stop them in the grocery store you hand them human action or <laughs> you know road to serfdom or even the law by Bostet, which isn't very long how many of them would actually you know sit down and read that very very few um but when you talk to those parents like I, i'm a religious watcher of um of a uh, shark tank and Cuban all the time is talking about how people will will pay will be very stingy when it comes to spending money on themselves, but they will pay inordinate amounts of money for their pets and their kids. Like they're not mm-hmm. nearly as discriminating with with mm-hmm. so those businesses tend to succeed. So when we go to these moms in the grocery store, our fictional mom, and we say, "Hey, do you want your kid to be well rounded or a critical thinker or mm-hmm. entrepreneurial or you know whatever?" Oh yeah, okay. Hey, mm-hmm. these books help. So they sit down and read them, and now mom is getting exposed to these ideas for the first time that they know. And then at the end of our books, as we do in this book, it's like, Hey, go read the original, go get, you know, Rothbard's conceived in Liberty, get a little bit more. And so it's been such an amazing way to introduce uh, a lot of, you know, new people to these authors, thinkers, writers, their, their ideas. Um, I I, honestly, it makes me optimistic. I'm, I'm, I generally lean a little bit pessimistic, uh, but this project has given me a lot of hope for the future because we see how all these new people are learning about these ideas because we've taken the barriers down. It's not a 300 page book written Mm -hmm. a century ago. It's not in, Mm -hmm. you know, English with multiple syllable words that Mm -hmm. people can't stomach anymore. Hey, read this picture book and and learn about Mm -hmm. Liberty. And it's just been very effective and and super enjoyable to be a part of. Well, and let's, be honest, and this is no knock on those parents. Look, people are out there trying to pay their mortgage, whatever they're doing all day. People totally. went to crappy schools. I mean, I guarantee you there are plenty of people who get this book for their kids or grandkids who never heard of the Magna Carta, and this is their first introduction to it. So yeah. if this is your first introduction to it and you're 65, better late than never, right? I mean, that's a great thing. But 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 I, I want to get back to this idea of... of Going up to housewives at grocery store and giving them human action, because I, you know, I, have, I haven't done that, and I'm married. I don't think that would work, even were I not married. I'm pretty sure that that wouldn't work. <laughs> Tuttle twins might work, um, but you know, I, I want want to bring up one thing about you know later in the book when you're just talking about the tumult uh, uh, leading up to the revolutionary period. You know, we have this hubris, I think, in modern life that the digital communications devices we all have in our pockets uh, adds to, which is that we live in such unprecedented times of rapid change and tumult. 
You know, and that's just, excuse my French, that's just total bullshit. Um, you know, I have childhood memories of my great-grandmother. She only lived until I was about five or six. But she was born in the late 1800s. So in her lifetime, she went from outdoor plumbing, no electricity, to, you know, homes with electricity, electric lights, radio, automobiles, air travel, television, space travel, you know, just before she died. And I, I mean, you know, I think, I think one of the most important things about history is puncturing our self-importance, I guess. Mm, I like that. I might borrow that line. I'll credit you if I do. I was, uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a historian. His name's Greg Wright. He runs a podcast that, that I recommend called History That Doesn't Suck. And it's all storytelling. It's, it's just, you know, he, t- he tells a story and you go along for the adventure. So we were talking about this. He lives here locally. We're at breakfast the other day. And uh, he told me he was working on a book about this, actually, because he, he hears this argument that the tumult, the toxicity, the, you know, people are like, we're, there's so much contention and, you know, and, and we're so divided. And, and so for him, he's like, this is like completely ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Anyone who, who says that it's worse today than it ever has been, clearly has not opened a history book. I mean, when was the last time we had a duel, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't have any, you know, uh, people beating it. Like, or you see like in, in other countries where their parliament, they're landing, you know, ending in brawls where it's just like a, you see these videos on YouTube and everyone's just like landing blows on people. So like, I don't know, it, it's easy to beat ourselves up. It's easy to be very myopic and kind of just dismissively and ignorantly think it's never been this bad or, uh, I think it was Louis C.K. in one of his uh, interviews on like Jay Leno or whatever, to your point about the technological progress, he has this great bit. He's sitting there and he's like, I'm on an airplane. I'm looking around. Everyone's miserable and they're just upset, shuffling onto the plane and getting cranky with their elbow room. And I'm, I'm looking around and I'm like, you people are insane. Do you not realize that we're like in a flying metal tube? Like how amazing that is. And so to me, it's, 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 you point out like even with your, um, was it your grandma? Great you grandmother. Said it was? Great grandmother. You know, to go in one lifespan to see so little and then see so much, when we, when we understand our history, I think to your earlier point about gratitude, it, it helps us better appreciate what we have today to understand what it was like back then. I think similarly, and maybe in the opposite, it can also make us more motivated and um, you know, active in our desire for a better world today to understand the ideas and the, the, the intellect and the ideology and the philosophy and everything of our founding generation, for example, to like, look at what these guys were studying and what they were doing and the discourse they were having and, and whatever. Like if we want to save our country today, we have to restore some aspect of that. And we have to do some of this stuff. So to me, like I, I hate, as I said, I hated history in school It wasn't, in fact, I told Tom this on his podcast, the book that changed for me was Nullification. Uh, Someone, I think, gave me a copy or I I found it online and that opened my eyes to learning history in a far more, so then I started reading all these history books and Ron Paul had his like recommended Mm -hmm. reading list. I'm just like going down all these books and, and I went on a binge because I suddenly learned for the first time that when you, when you consume history as a story and then try and learn from it what not just like, hey, that's interesting, those things happen, but more like with nullification, it was, 
I read the book and then I started talking to lawmakers here in my state, like, Hey guys, let's do something. And so when history is presented in a way that empowers us to act, I think it is so much more enjoyable. And I, I have over here, they're out of frame, but I have a stack of social studies books. When we first started this project two years ago, we're flipping through all these books, you know, and, and none of them teach kids things that they can apply in their lives today. It's all stuff that happened long ago. You mm-hmm. need to memorize it. But there's nothing in there to say, here's how you can take this information and fight for a better world or empower yourself. So what we're trying to do with our book is not just teach what happened, but provoke them with questions to say, what does that mean for you today? How does that apply to our world today? Because that's, I think, how we learn from the past so that we don't repeat its mistakes. So what is the best way for people to get hold of this book and the other Tuttle Twins if they're so inclined? So Mises Institute is now stocked with copies. You can get it there. Uh, you can also go to tuttletwins.com slash history and uh, pick up a copy there and uh, start reading. Well, Connor, I want to thank you for filling in for Bob Murphy, who is, as I mentioned, languishing on vacation. As is his Not want. nearly as handsome as he, but yes. so, I'll have to do. Hey, I want to congratulate you on this, and I want to encourage you very much to consider doing those other Tuttle Twins history books uh, up and through the Eisenhower era, as you, as you mentioned, because I think that's something that the world needs. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited. We're already starting uh, to work on Volume 2, Elijah and I, uh, still kind of using Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty because it covers the same kind of mm-hmm. constitutional period, so... Uh, maybe he'll get the forward in this book as well. I don't know. But volume two, we're working on. Hope to have it out uh, much like volume one by the 4th of July uh, next year. So it's in the works and then we'll get working on it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you need to avail yourselves of these books. Get them in the hands of your kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, whoever you want. And I might add, they're also beautifully illustrated. So they're, they're a pleasure uh, to spend time with. Connor, thanks a million. Ladies and gentlemen, you have a great weekend. Thanks, Jeff. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.